One year ago today, Russia attempted a takeover of Ukraine that didn't work out as planned. Ukrainians mark a year of lives and cities destroyed and a year of united resistance. What can the second year bring? I'm Amy Martinez, that's Steve Inskeep, and this is Up First from NPR News. China offers some thoughts on ending the war in Ukraine. The posture of peacemaker is very important for Xi Jinping, both before the world and before his own people. But can a friend of Russia really help to find a way out of the war? Also, a federal judge considers a challenge to abortion pills. Activists want the judge in Texas to say the FDA improperly approved them. Could his decision restrict abortion access even in states where it's legal? Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your day. Support for NPR and the following message come from GoodRx. If you're thinking about breaking some bad habits this year, start with this one, overpaying for your prescriptions. To do that, get in the good habit of always checking GoodRx to help find the best price for your prescription medications. GoodRx is free, easy to use, and can instantly save you up to 80% at the pharmacy counter. So for simple, smart savings on your prescription medications, go to goodrx.com slash up first. How has a year of war transformed Ukraine? One year ago, Russia's invasion was so hard to imagine that many analysts dismissed the idea. Russia itself mocked U.S. warnings of invasion. Apparently, even some Russian soldiers didn't understand what they were doing until the shooting started. Now... Ukraine faced the daily reality of the largest European war since 1945. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has covered much of that war, and she's on the line from Kiev. Hey there, Joanna. Hey, Steve. What's it like to be where you are? So, Steve, this is a very somber day for Ukraine. And here in Kiev, just think about how different this city was a year ago. It was so vibrant and full of life. And now many residents of the city are dead. Many others are refugees. Others are on the front line fighting. Um, And you don't, you know, you walk around the city and you see relatively normal life. Some restaurants are open, people are going to work, people are walking along, you know, holding hands with their kids. But you don't have to go too far out of the city to see destruction. In the suburbs, you see bridges that have been bombed, homes, shopping malls, all destroyed. And these are also places that saw horrors, you know, people tortured, people executed. Uh, And that pain hasn't gone away. Uh, But this invasion has also united Ukrainians. Um, It's made them defiant. And so the government is holding a series of events today to acknowledge these deep feelings of pain and defiance. Those are the bells of St. Michael's Cathedral, and this is where we met Olha Karmanitska. Um, She said her husband, Ivan, was killed on the front lines three months ago. She was at a ceremony today where his portrait was hung on a memorial wall for fallen soldiers. Today, I have no words. It's hard. It's complicated. This year has gone by as if it were a month. A long, long month. I can't even bring myself to say the name Russia. So President Volodymyr Zelensky called this the longest day of our lives in an early morning video address, and he's expected to speak again later today. So that's what it's like to be in Kiev. How are other countries observing this one-year mark? 
Well, you know, uh, Ukrainians are worried that Russians will mark this day with even more attacks. Um, meanwhile, the United Nations uh, General Assembly yesterday overwhelmingly passed a resolution asking for an immediate withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. And yesterday, there were very public signs of support in major cities. In London, activists painted the street outside the Russian embassy in blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And in Brussels, a pro-Ukraine demonstrators filled a neighborhood with teddy bears, representing the thousands of Ukrainian children who have been forcibly moved to Russia. So that is how the world is marking this day. What do you hear from Ukrainians about the immediate future? So I saw a public opinion poll the other day that said that nearly 80% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine is going to win. And by win, they mean reclaim every inch of territory that Russia has occupied since 2014, including the southern peninsula of Crimea. Uh, the West has given, let's remember, the, the West has given Ukraine billions in military and humanitarian aid. Western weapons have helped Ukrainian forces hit Russian targets and reclaim occupied territory. Uh, and Western aid has helped Ukraine restore some of its power grid after it was almost destroyed during months of Russian strikes. Ukrainians are very grateful for all this, and they want to show the West and the Kremlin, and even themselves, uh, that they are rebuilding even as Russia continues to attack. NPR's Joanna Kakissis, thanks so much. You're welcome, Steve. Okay, now on this anniversary... China says it's seeking a way out of Russia's war in Ukraine. Yeah, Chinese officials released a so-called position paper calling for a ceasefire. Now, their gesture at peace comes during the same week that the U.S. warned that China might intensify the war. They could send rush, what, weapons to Russia. Analyst Robert Daly told NPR that China is trying to prop up one of its few powerful friends. The posture of peacemaker is very important for Xi Jinping, both before the world and before his own people. But he also sees himself in an existential competition with the United States, for which he needs Russia. One way or another, China wants Russia to come out okay. NPR China affairs correspondent John Ruich is in Beijing. Hey there, John. Good morning. So what exactly was in this position paper? Well, there were 12 points. They were really broad principles, and they included things like, you know, hostilities should end and peace talks should get underway. It says all parties should create conditions for negotiations and support dialogue between Russia and Ukraine so they can gradually de-escalate this conflict. Now, some of these points did seem to be targeted at Russia. It said nuclear arms must not be used and that the threat to do so must be opposed. Mm. It also said China is opposed to attacks on nuclear power plants. And you'll recall that there was fighting around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant not, not that many months ago. Uh, but there were also points clearly targeting the U.S. and the West, calling for an end to unilateral sanctions, for instance, or abandoning the, quote, Cold War mentality. Okay, this is very interesting as a public document since it shows China pushing at least a little bit on both sides, trying to be a kind of mediator or peacemaker, as Mr. Right. Daly said earlier. But, but would this document have any impact? That's a key question. I mean, the government has talked it up in recent days, but it's not entirely clear to what end. I asked Ian Chong about this. He's an associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore, and he was kind of scratching his head, too. There isn't much leverage involved. The document lays out broad general principles, but no real reason why you might want to cease and desist, right? There's no big appeal that you're getting something. There's no big cost if you don't comply. 
His best guess is that it's an attempt by Beijing to project an image to a domestic audience, perhaps to others, that China's a global player, it's being constructive, it's standing up for peace. None of the points in this document, it has to be said, are new, uh, which is a little bit puzzling. And in Chong's words, you know, it's unclear if this position paper is, is a punchline or if it's setting the stage for more to come. John, what do you make of the nearly simultaneous U.S. accusations that China, the peacemaker here, is considering providing lethal assistance to Russia, which would extend the war? We don't know much about what China's plans are. I've talked with people that think China would never do something like this. Others think China may go there if it looks like Russia is on the ropes and is about to be defeated. You know, that's because there, there's this strong belief here that if Russia's defeated, if it's weakened uh, in the wake of a war, that the West, that the U.S. really will be able to focus on trying to contain China more. You know, by all accounts, China was surprised by the Russian invasion a year ago, but it's stuck by Moscow. It hasn't condemned the invasion. Trade with Russia, for instance, has risen sharply over the course of the war. So, you know, this potential of China changing tax, really, and providing lethal support would be a pretty big new irritant in U.S.-China relations and in China's relations with the EU. I will note, though, that when asked about it, China's foreign ministry says China wants peace. It accuses the U.S. of spreading false news and of fanning the flames of conflict by providing arms to Ukraine. NPR's John Ruich, always appreciate your insights. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, abortion pills could soon become much more difficult to obtain, even in states where abortion remains legal. A federal lawsuit challenges the FDA's approval of an abortion drug that's been used for decades. Lawyers are submitting their final arguments to the judge today that has some reproductive health care providers looking for other options. NPR Sarah McCammon is following the case. Sarah, good morning. Good morning, Steve. How did this come before the judge? What's it about? Well, it's about abortion pills, medication abortion, which is now the most common form of abortion in the U.S., and it's targeting a protocol that's used by about 98% of people here. According to the Guttmacher Institute, this two-drug regimen that was first approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 2000 is used by 98% of people, and it's approved to terminate pregnancies up to about 10 weeks. Now, a group of abortion rights opponents is arguing the abortion pill Mifepristone, which is part of that protocol, was improperly approved, and they're asking a federal judge in Texas to overturn that approval. Okay, so what happens if the judge says, wait a minute, this is no longer an FDA-approved drug? Well, it would take away that option. And again, to just explain a little bit, it involves taking two drugs, first mifepristone, then misoprostol, in combination to end a pregnancy. That second drug I mentioned, Steve, I know they sound similar, but misoprostol, it's widely used around the world on its own to end pregnancies, and it is widely available in the U.S. for other uses, off-label uses, labor and delivery, IUD insertion, things like that. And it is still likely to be available, regardless of what happens with this case, even if that first drug goes away. I talked to Farah Diaz-Teo, senior counsel at If, When, How, which is a legal group that supports abortion rights. And here's how she explained it. The use of mesoprostol for obstetrical and gynecological indications is already considered off-label, which doesn't mean illegal. Off-label use of medications is something very common. It happens every single day, as long as it's within the standard of care. 
there isn't a problem with it. And because of the threat to mifepristone from this lawsuit, abortion providers around the country say they're preparing to switch, if needed, to that single drug protocol, misoprostol alone. Okay, so I'm trying to follow along here. Two drugs, one could plausibly be thrown out by this lawsuit in Texas, leaving the second drug standing alone. What is known about that drug? Most providers say that based on decades of data from around the world, it is safe and can be quite effective, but not as effective as the two-drug protocol that's being challenged. If you only use misoprostol, there is a greater risk of nausea, cramping, bleeding. Dr. Ushma Upadhyay at the University of California, San Francisco, says if that two-drug protocol is no longer available, the next best option for some people may actually be a surgical abortion. I think it's going to be a huge learning curve for clinicians to figure out what's the best right protocol for this patient. How should I counsel this specific patient based on their legal risks and based on how far they travel to get here. And Stephen, another sign of just how concerned reproductive rights advocates are about this lawsuit, Vice President Kamala Harris is hosting a meeting later this morning with reproductive rights advocates to discuss mifepristone availability and other threats to abortion access. And Sarah McCammon, thanks so much. Thank you. We are also following a sensational murder trial in which the defendant now admits he lied. Alec Murdoch is a South Carolina attorney. He's accused of killing his own wife and son and has now testified in his own defense. He says he did not commit the crime, but admits he did lie to police about where he was at the time. Were you in fact at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Murdoch says he lied about his whereabouts because of his paranoia caused by opiate addiction and not to cover up a crime. The trial resumes later today, and you can stay tuned to NPR News for more coverage. And that's Up First for this Friday, February 24th. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Up First is produced by Julie Deppenbrock and David West. Our editors are Alice Wolfley and H.J. Mai. Our technical director is Brian Jarbo. And our director is Lily Quiros. And our executive producer is Erica Aguilar. Remember that Up First comes your way on Saturdays with Aisha Roscoe and Scott Simon.